welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. All right. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. And as as Peter said, uh, if you're looking around, ladies, and you're wondering why uh, you're so alone, it's uh, not that we've driven them off, um, but they're off at a retreat, having a great time, and and we're praying that they're having a great encounter with Jesus uh, together as ladies. Well, it was about 2,000 years ago that, that Jesus kind of walked around this earth, and he's performing these miracles, these signs, these wonders, and you can only imagine the buzz that was going through uh, the, the neighborhood, through the area, and, and this is long before any kind of social media, and so they're not able to promote themselves on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the other channels out there. It was just simply word of mouth, but the buzz was massive. Hundreds and thousands of people were following Jesus and, and, and word was spreading very quickly. And, and with that came a bunch of, of questions. What was, what was so special about this man from Nazareth? And, and so Jesus, in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 16, he, he says to his disciples, essentially he says, what's the word on the street? What's, what are people saying in response to all that's happening? And the disciples answered, well, some are saying you're John the Baptist. Others are saying you're Elijah. Some are saying you're Jeremiah. And others are picking some of their favorite prophets. And so there are all these questions about who Jesus is. And so then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, now who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the spokesman, I guess, of the group, speaks up and and he says, well, you're the Messiah. You're, You're the Christ. You're the Savior. You're the promised one, the one we've been waiting for, the Son of God himself. And Jesus responds to that, blessed are you, Simon Peter, Simon Barjona, for for recognizing this, for seeing this, for on this truth, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, our Catholic friends have taken that passage and they they saw this this phrase upon this rock, which is a derivation in the Greek of the word Peter, of Petros. And so what Catholic friends have done is they said, well, upon Peter, 
God was going to build his church. And so Peter became the first pope, and every pope afterwards could be kind of tied back to Peter in that sense. And, and so that's why the pope has all his authority, which is terrifying, quite frankly, that one fallible human being would have, A, that much power, but B, that God would build a church on that one person. That's not what he was saying. It's not upon you, Peter, this rock, but on the rock, the foundation, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. That's, that's the foundation upon which everything that we have, everything that we believe in is, is built upon. To, to put it another way, the, the, the reality or the simple truth of why we're here is because Jesus is the Messiah, because he's the Savior, he's the Christ. And we've placed our faith in that, and, and, and we're excited about what God has done through Jesus Christ to redeem, or potentially redeem all of mankind, but redeem you and I. But remember what he said, it goes, upon this truth, upon this rock, I will, Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, who's going to build the church? Jesus is. I've heard a lot of messages, even some songs that, that we sing as, as, as believers in the church, where the message is that you, the church, are the hope of the world. No. No, if that were the case, we'd be in a pretty hopeless place. Because how many people can the church save? None. Always remember, the role of Savior has been filled. Get another job. And he's not looking for an assistant Holy Spirit. He doesn't need any help with you and I. In terms of that sense, he's the one that's going to build the church. He's the one that's going to do the work. Or I've heard other messages where we, we use guilt and shame because the idea is that somehow some people are going to miss out on heaven because of what you didn't do. And it's God's depending on you. And again, the reality is our God is bigger. In Acts 17, it says that, that God doesn't need you and I. And there's some great stories in history of that, of, even in regards to salvation. One of my favorite stories is a story about a, a woman named Mimosa. And, and there was a story written by a missionary called Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary in the, the last century, the last millennium. Sounds even older. But uh, she was a missionary to India, and, and she writes a story about Mimosa. Mimosa was about 12 years old when her parents decided to sell her as a sex slave so they could make a few bucks. Hard to imagine. Some have experienced it, but that's what happened. And so there's a 12-year-old girl. She cried out. Now, again, she's, she's of Indian descent. They've got many, many gods. And so she had a simple prayer. She says, to the most high God. So the most high God, if you will rescue me from this, from this fate, I will, I will give my life to you in service. I will belong to you and you'll be my God. And so sure enough, she was rescued and she ran away and, and she honored her pledge. She honored her vow. She, she formed an orphanage to look after other young girls that were also being sold into slavery. Well, fast forward many, many decades. And a woman comes up to Mimosa and says, Mimosa, there's a woman down in the town. Her name's Amy Carmichael, and she's talking about your God. Well, Mimosa drops everything, runs down the mountain, and, and meets Amy Carmichael, and she comes up to her and she says, I got one question for you. What's the name of your God? Well, Amy Carmichael's kind of blown, confused, not sure. She goes, what's, what's the name of your God? She says, well, his name's Jesus. And that was enough. 
And, Amy, and Mimosa walks away. Now, when was Mimosa saved? When she heard the name Jesus? Or was she saved when she cried out to the Most High God? God didn't need Amy Carmichael to rescue Mimosa. He was able to do it. Or, or now, I don't know if you've heard these stories, but these reports over in, in Muslim countries where these, these, these devout Muslims are having dreams of Jesus and they're meeting Jesus in their dreams. And these dreams are so, so rampant through these countries where, where as you and I, we don't have or very limited access into. And Jesus is meeting people in the dreams because the government can't control your dreams. Not yet, at least. And so he's meeting them in their dreams. And, and it's so rampant, it's so widespread, they say that either you've had the dream yourself or you know someone who has. Again, Jesus doesn't need you and I. Yet, that doesn't mean that he doesn't want to use us. It's not a cop-out for us. The reality is he doesn't need us, but he prefers and he chooses to involve you and I. In, in the same way that God doesn't need me to stand up here and teach you guys. He's a far better teacher than I am. He's far more effective and efficient. And I seem to get in the way some of the, some of the time. And yet God chooses to do that. He has gifted to the church these offices, the office of the apostle and the prophet and the evangelist and the pastor teacher. And as inefficient as we are, he chooses to work through others so that more people are encouraged, more people are blessed. And that's the case with building the church. He's the one that's doing the work. He doesn't need you and I, but he prefers and he chooses to work through you and I. You don't have to turn to it, but in Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes this, How shall they, they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How should they believe in whom they have not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. See, God doesn't need people, but he wants to use people. He wants to use you and I to bring these glad tidings, to bring the good news of the gospel to many, many people. And what we're seeing this morning in this passage in, in 2 Corinthians is an example of that as Paul brought the, the gospel to the Corinthian church or informed the Corinthian church uh, during his second missionary journey. So turn your Bibles there to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to read beginning verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure, to teach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves, as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come, even as far as you, in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other man's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere, enlarged even more by you. So as to preach the gospel, even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Let's pray. Father, 
I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, you would stir something up in us this morning. Through your, your words and your message of life and freedom and hope, that you would, you would create a passion for us, in us. Uh, an excitement, maybe, maybe an excitement that we haven't felt since we were first saved. When we first received the simplicity of that gospel message that you love us. Hallelujah. Oh, how you love us. And that love would motivate us to love you and love others. And so, Lord Jesus, we're going to trust you as best we know how as we go through this passage. And I, again, I pray that your life would be manifest through us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, like we said earlier in this, this last section of, of 2 Corinthians, from chapter 10 to the end, Paul's now addressing his critics, the people who've been criticizing him, uh, although he was the one that formed the Corinthian church. And you can read all about how he did that in Acts chapter 18. It was, it was during his second missionary journey. And it's, it's kind of cool to read in the book of Acts and kind of place where these letters that he wrote are happening in all of that. And so Paul's writing this letter on the third missionary journey, but he formed the church on the second missionary journey. Now, again, God didn't need Paul. Amen. He chose Paul and he preferred to use Paul, but he didn't need Paul. If Paul doesn't go to Corinth and, and doesn't share the gospel, God would find another way, which is good news for you and I, because he's not depending on us. He uses us, but he's not counting on us. And so someone else would have gone, someone else would have formed that church, but maybe it would have been years later. And maybe that had been years where people would have struggled and suffered without having any hope without knowing that, that there's a God out there that loves them, that there's a, there's a God out there that cares about them. And so Paul being the one to bring the gospel to that, to that city and Paul being the one to, to plant this church, he's, he's played a forever role, a key role that no one could remove from him. He was the one that brought them the gospel for the first time. And again, what, what Paul's critics are, they're jealous of this fact. And so they're undermining him. They're attacking him. And even to the point where they're taking credit for the church over Paul, which amounts to essentially stolen valor. You've heard that phrase before. It's often when, when people pose as military soldiers and they, they wear the medals, but yet they never earned a single one of them. And that's stolen valor. They're taking credit for other people's work. And that's what's happening with these critics. They're taking credit for, for Paul's works here. And so he's reminding them that he was the one that brought the gospel to them for the first time. That he wasn't building off of another man's foundation. It wasn't someone else came and brought the gospel and then he came and took it further. He was the one that initiated all that. Now he's going to answer his critics in more detail in the next chapter, in particular in chapter 11. But, but that phrase that Paul wasn't building on another man's foundation struck me. So with a, with a show of hands, how many people here this morning, and again, it's limited numbers because the ladies are away, but how many people here this morning, this is not your first church? Meaning you've been to another church and now you're here. Go ahead, raise your hand with a show of hands. All right. How many people, this is your very first church? That you haven't been anywhere before, this is your very first church. Can we do a count, Jim, quickly? How many, how many hands do you see? Uh, none. Not, yeah. <laughs> you didn't know there'd be math this morning, right? <clears throat> There's none of us. 
Now, now it's okay that you're all here from a different church. I know there, there are some, some pastors out there that, that, that struggle with the idea that, you know, people, people are switching where they're attending or they're fellowshipping on Sunday mornings, and, and they, they struggle with that. And, and there's two issues with that. First, you never leave a church to join another church because there's only one church. Please understand, like we say, well, there's small, ch- small C church and there's big C church. That's just a man's division, but God doesn't see it that way. There is one body, one spirit, one baptism, one church. You did not leave a church to join this church. You are still part of the church. All you've changed is where you fellowship with and who you fellowship with, but you're still part of the same church. And in fact, some of you participate in multiple communities. And I think that's fantastic that there are people who they come here on a Sunday morning, they go here on another Sunday morning and they got their kids participating in some youth activities and they're, they're over here and they're meeting with other believers. And I think that's amazing that you're able to participate in multiple communities. Because the other thing is we don't own you here. You don't belong to us. You're, you're my people, but not in a sense that I control you. I have, I have dominion over you. you. I don't possess you. You're mine because I have your heart and you have mine. But I don't own you. And so you're free to go. You're free to leave. And that's okay. Because you're still, you're never leaving the church. You're still part of the same church. And I think Paul understood that because when he's talking about these churches, churches that he planted, churches that he fought for, churches that he poured his heart into, he also recognized that they didn't belong to him. They were the bride of Christ, that they were betrothed to another, to Jesus, and that he was simply the one to help bring that union together. And he understood that. And so that's what we get to do is you guys all belong. We all belong to Jesus, not to a logo, not to a building, not to a website, not to a brand, none of that. In fact, the reality is God will often use multiple people in your journey. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about that, how, how some, you know, the, some plant seeds and others water those seeds. But who causes the growth? God causes the growth. Right? Everyone has a, a different role, a, a, a different part in that. It doesn't matter if, if your job was preparing the soil. And maybe your job then was to come and actually dig a hole. And then another person comes and puts a seed in there. And then another person comes and they water it. Another person comes and they, they, they kind of fence it around to make sure the rabbits don't get there. And then eventually God causes that growth. There are many different people that participated in that journey. And that's true for you and I. That maybe someone introduces you to the gospel, but you weren't quite ready for it yet. But they were preparing the soil. They were, they were laying down some groundwork for it. And then someone else comes and they actually shared the seed. They actually shared the gospel with you in a way that you were able to receive it now. And then others watered and others cared for it and others nourished it. But in all of it, God causes the growth. And so it's okay that we, we might switch from church to church from time to time. That there's a season for different places. That's okay. That's, that's not an issue for us. And so maybe you got saved at one church, but you grow in your faith for a season here, and then maybe down the road you go to another church. So be it. God's the one that's working because it's all about God, right? It's all about his body, his bride, not about the logo. 
But the reality is, I would say, the ideal way to enlarge a fellowship is by growing the kingdom. Which means not, not just transferring from church to church, which again is okay, but ideally to bring people who are lost in that broken world into the kingdom of God. And that's what we want to see. We want to see this idea of what's called evangelism, which is going out and sharing the gospel with those who don't yet know it. Now, for some of you, I heard the groan. You hear the word evangelism, you're like, oh, and you just get deflated. And, and you feel a bit of a failure and you feel like you're not good enough. Because that's how I feel. But remember, remember that key point. Who's going to build the church? Jesus says, I will build my church, Jesus says. But he prefers and he chooses to invite us, to involve us. And that's what's kind of cool in all this, that we get to be a part of his work. And his work here is so important. It's so critical that what happens whenever someone places their faith in Jesus for the first time? Party goes off. A party goes off in heaven. Man, wouldn't it be cool to when you get to heaven to actually see the video footage of that party? Gabriel dancing up a storm and David dancing like the way he did when he came into town, right? Like that would be amazing to see. But keep in mind, there was a party for you. Right, Lisa, there was a party when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. That's how excited God was for you. And that's how excited he is for each and every person that joins the kingdom. That's how important this evangelism this is. Now, there's lots of reasons we struggle with this. Fear of rejection. Maybe we're, we're afraid that we're going to lose our friends, that they're going to be turned off by this. Or, or we feel like our hypocrite, that we're unqualified because my life isn't, isn't perfect. It's, it's got some issues in it. Or maybe you lack confidence because you're like me, you're an introvert and you're afraid to get out and share. Maybe you don't know how to share. You don't know what to do about it. And so often what happens is we, we think, well, it's the pastor's job to get people to be saved. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring my unbeliever to church on Sunday morning and present him to the pastor. And then I wash my hands of it and off you go. Please understand, this is, this is not the place to get people saved. Now, we're not going to deny that. We're not going to say, oh, no, I'm sorry. You can't get saved this morning. We're happy to do it. But that's not our point. Sunday mornings is a time for the church. It's a time for believers. It's a time for us to be encouraged by the word of God so that we go out and be the church. And so ideally, the evangelism is taking place beyond these four walls, outside of this building. It's happening in your homes, at your workplaces, in coffee shops and on the streets and, and wherever you are. That's where hopefully it's happening, beyond this walls. And so... I want you to know it's okay to struggle. It's okay that it's hard. It's all right, but it's still worth it. There's still great value to it. And I think sometimes we have to, we have to be reminded again of how special it is. So consider this. What do you do when you find a, a new movie or a new TV show? What do you do? Hey, guys, you got to check out this show. It's amazing. Or you, you, you stumble upon a new recipe, right? How to, how to cook chicken and, and really easy, but it tastes so juicy and tender. And, and what do you do with that recipe? Do you hide it? 
Tell your friends. Hey, you got to check this out. Try this recipe. Or you find a new song. Share the song. Hey, guys, check out this new song. It's amazing. Or a great restaurant. Or, or you find a, a garage that will fix your car without selling you headlight fluid. <laughs> right? I mean, you're like, you go and you boast about that. You tell the world. You want others to know about it. You don't want to hide that. Well, think about the gospel then. Think about how important what we have, how great it is, and yet we struggle to share. Now, I realize it is harder to share the gospel than it is to talk about a new restaurant. It's less controversial. You talk about, hey, there's a new restaurant here. People just say, hey, that's great, or they don't, but no one's offended by it. But sometimes when you go and you share the gospel, people will be offended by it. Don't bring your religion here. Don't, you know, that's for you, but it's not for me. But I think things are changing. If you trust the polling out there, it says that this, this generation that's coming, the, the culture is becoming more and more open to spiritual things. Now, what kind of spiritual things is, you know, new age or, or Islam and so forth, but they're at least willing now to engage in a conversation. And so there's less of a backlash. Plus, the last few years has created quite a bit of chaos in this world. And chaos provides that opportunity because people are a little bit more desperate. They're a little bit more hurting. And so we get to share the gospel now with them. Now consider the stakes. Consider the stakes of what happens when people never hear the gospel. Again, God doesn't need you and I. He can rescue and save them. But, but how blessed are those who bring the good news? Why? Well, because it's not universalism. What, is, what does that universalism term mean? Anyone know? Go ahead, shout it out. All religions are the same, or really, everyone's saved. Right? That's, that's what universalism would teach, is that the whole universe, all people, everyone, is going to end up in heaven one day. Now, maybe, maybe they go there directly. Some would say, others say they may, they may have a time in, in hell because they're rebellious and, and so forth. But eventually, love wins and they're all going to be in heaven is the idea of universalism. Now, I hope that's true. I really do. Like, if, if I show up in, in, in heaven and I meet the guy who invented Pepsi, I'd be amazed. But I'd celebrate that. I would. If I meet Hitler, I will celebrate that. I want it to be universalism. It's just our father's word says it's not. I had a man come up to me and he says, is, is the hand of God so short that it can't reach everyone? This idea that, that somehow we're, we're hindering God by not teaching universalism. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to, to Isaiah 59. In verse 1, it says, Behold, the, land, the Lord's hand is not so, so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. See? It's not so short. He's powerful. He's strong enough. He will rescue everyone. We'll read verse two. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 
It's not that he can't. It's that sin has broken the relationship. And unless that sin has been addressed and dealt with, then it remains. And so it's not universalism. But it's also not predestination. That's that theological term where where some would would teach and believe that, that God has already predestined. He's already chosen some subset of people to be saved, which if you're intellectually honest with yourself, he's also chosen uh, the rest of that group for hell and damnation. But it's not predestination. Think about what he said about Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, how I've longed for you to come to me so that I could take you under my wing. That's his desire. That's his will. But he says, you were not willing. He didn't say, but you weren't chosen. Sorry. No, he says, it was offered to you, but you weren't willing to do it. See, God wishes that none would perish. If he chose some and not others, then he can't say that. So it's not predestination. It's not universalism either. Instead, the reality is hell is real. In fact, you know who spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible? It was Jesus. It's a real place. It's a real potential outcome for everyone. And please understand, God does not send anyone to hell. If God's so loving, why does he send people to hell? He doesn't send people to hell. They choose it. Because they've rejected salvation. They rejected God's way. And thereby, they're choosing to go to hell. You don't have to turn there, but in John 3, 17, we all know 16, right? For God so loved the world, not just some part, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, that's it. That's the only condition. Whoever believes in Christ, literally into Christ, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, verse 17 says, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, because the world's already been judged. It's already been condemned in Adam. So God isn't coming to send people to hell. He's coming to rescue people. But they've chosen to that path. And so the question is, for you and I, those people who are right now choosing it, have they been given a good opportunity to hear the gospel? Again, on that day when they face judgment, no one will be without excuse, it says. They won't be able to say, oh, Craig just didn't tell me. I mean, if Craig told me, I would have listened. Remember what Jesus said about the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus? Rich man says, Jesus, just send someone back to tell my brothers. Remember what Jesus said to him? Even if Moses was raised again and told him, they wouldn't listen. Because Jesus is raised, and they still don't listen to Jesus. So every person has to make that choice. But, but maybe there are people that if we could share the gospel with them today, it will save them five years of heartache down the road. And maybe they'll get saved five years from now, ten years from now. But maybe, maybe you had that opportunity today to bring the gospel to them. And the reality is that's partly why you have this relationship. See, the the best way to share the gospel, the best way to share the good news is through relationship. It's not the only way. I mean, we see, you see time and time throughout scriptures where where Peter gets up and he preached a sermon, 3,000 or 5,000 people were saved. Or we see Philip the evangelist just coming across this Ethiopian sitting in a cart, in a chariot, 
and he shared the gospel with him. Total stranger. So it can happen that way. But often the best way is through a relationship. The problem with that, though, is that there's always a reason to, to delay. There's always a reason to say, well, I, not yet. Not yet. I, I just, I want to I wanna build the relationship more. You know, because they say nobody cares what you know until they know you care. So I got to make sure that they know I care. And we just delay and we push off. We kick the can down the road. Like the government dealing with debt problems. Just, just next generation. Kick it down the road. And we never actually get there. But you see, I, think, I don't think we actually lack opportunity. I think opportunities abound around us. We just don't have eyes to see it because we're not looking for it. We're not being intentional towards it. See, Jesus, when he walked this earth as a man, like you and I, right? He didn't live like God, although he was God. He lived as a man, a simple man from Nazareth. And he says, I can do nothing apart from the Father. In the same way that you and I can do nothing apart from him. But then he says, I only say and do what I hear the Father saying and doing. Meaning Jesus was looking for where God was working. And wherever he saw his father working, he, got in, he saw that as an invitation to be a part of that work. But he had to have eyes to see it. He was looking for it. And maybe if we adopt an attitude and say, God, who are you working in to share the gospel with? Who are you working in in my life, in, in my, my surroundings, my family? My friends, my people at work, maybe the, the person I see at the Starbucks or Tim Hortons week after week or day after day when I get my coffee, who are the people, Lord, that you want to share the gospel with through me? And we have eyes to see. I think we'd see more opportunities. And again, you don't know where you are in that part of that journey. Maybe you're still just preparing the ground for someone else. And you're not the one that will share the gospel and pray with them. Maybe you are. Maybe you are the one that will plant that seed and they'll finally accept it. We don't know, but that's okay. It's simply about being a part of what God's doing because he's the one that's going to build the church. So now let's assume you find the person and you, you feel led and you feel called. How do you do that? Again, relationship is, is the key, but maybe what you can do is you can ask respectful questions. And I say respectful because too often people have been a little too obnoxious in their faith. That they've kind of tried to shove their faith down other people's throats or they've come across in a way that is very condemning and judging. But maybe you could ask simple questions. Questions that are more meant to start a conversation than to debate with them. Because again, you're really honestly caring about them. Now there's, there's lots of tools out there uh, for evangelism, like Romans Road. How many people remember the Romans Road or the, the four spiritual laws? We, we opened up this morning with the three circles presentation, which is sharing the gospel in three minutes. There's that, uh, that famous picture of the, the, the two um, cliffs with a chasm in between and explaining sin and then how Jesus is the bridge, the crosses. There's lots of different tools out there. But turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. Verses 14 
I don't think that's the verse. Oh, yeah, it is. Here it is. So verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify, set apart Christ as your Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I think this verse is telling us something, that, that always be ready to give the reason why you have hope. What difference has the gospel made in your life? And so you can, you can share your own testimony, and a great way to do that is just start to ask some questions. And, and maybe the first question, that to, to even start this up, is just to believe if there's a God out there. Do you believe that there's something bigger than us? Because the reality is, if there is no God, if we're just simply the, the result of an explosion and random mutations, and here we are, then simply eat, drink, and be merry. But if there's a God, that changes things. So you can ask that question. Now, a lot of people in our, in our society have grown up with this viewpoint that there is no God, that we're the product of the Big Bang and evolution. That everything came out of nothing with no spark, just happened. And then all these random mutations over time and ta-da, here we are. Think about that. When you, when you saw a picture of a pyramid for the first time, did you look at that pyramid and say, wow, the amount of wind and rainstorms to form that thing is impressive. And then to actually blow through it and create these tunnels, unbelievable. Or those statues on Easter Island. You've seen those statues, right? The people are gone. There's no, no one living on Easter Island because they literally ate themselves out of house and home. Cut down all the trees, and they have no more food, and they all died, and all that's left from that civilization are these statues. But did you look at those pictures, those statues, and go, wow, that prevailing wind just seemed to create all these faces? Does anyone think that? No, no one thinks that. We, we look at the complexity of life. We see the design and the intent. And we all know someone designed this. Someone built this. Someone had a purpose in all this. We recognize and we see that. That's why Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were made through God, through his spoken word. He made all this happen. Now, the reality is the person who's, who's choosing to believe in the Big Bang and evolution must believe in a greater miracle than what you and I believe. Everything out of nothing, randomly mutated, the odds of having a universe work, never mind a solar system, never mind a planet, the odds of that are so ludicrous. It's just not possible. And so they're believing in a greater miracle. But one of the leading atheists, Richard Dawkins, you know what he said about it? He says, you know what? I see what he calls the appearance of design. It's hard to see symmetry and deny that. It's hard to see the, the complexity of the human body, never minding just, just simple cells even. Because I see, I recognize the intention, the, the appearance of design. He says, I would, even, I would even grant to you the possibility that there is some other being greater than us that made us. I will grant you that on this condition, that I am not accountable to him. And that's the issue. 
I'm not accountable to him. I don't want to be accountable to that God. And that's the problem. That's why they need to believe all this. But if you can start that conversation and say, well, there's got to be something bigger than us. Well, that leads to question two. And question two is then, well, who is, who is this God? Who is this being that's greater than us? Now, it's interesting. It's 2,000 years ago. This was Paul's starting point. He didn't have to convince people that there is a God. They already had the belief that there was a God. And so he would show up and he would, he would go now to say, these are the gods you've been believing in, but they're nothing more than stone. They're nothing more, more than idols and gold and, and wood, and, and they can't actually do anything. But the God that I know is alive. The God that I know has been resurrected. And they could point to Jesus. And what's amazing about that is no one could deny that. I mean, if he was not resurrected, just drag the body in. But they couldn't do it because there was no body. And everyone around knew about this resurrection. And so that's what he could point to. That's what he could, uh, could show. And so this idea that Jesus was being crucified and buried in resurrection, just as he promised, was not disputed. And that tells you there's something about this guy who predicted, who called it, who actually also said that he is God himself. And then you look at the disciples, these, these scared disciples who ran when Jesus was arrested. After the resurrection, they died for their faith. There's a man named Chuck Colson in the 1970s. Uh, this is during the Watergate scandal. He was one of President Nixon's top advisors. And, and when it all started to unravel Watergate and the word was getting out and people were leaking and, and arrests were beginning to made, be made, he thought, okay, we're, we are the most powerful men in the world. We'll, we'll ride this out. And within a week, everyone starts rolling on everyone. I don't want to go to jail. Here's the truth. I'm not lying. Here's the truth. They did everything they could to save themselves after a week, the most powerful men in the world. Chuck Colson saw that and he says, you know what? If these guys rolled because they didn't want to believe a lie, then these 12 scared disciples, now apostles, died for it. If it was a lie, then the first time James, who I think was the first disciple, when he was killed, the other, the other disciples would have said, okay, you know what? We thought it was just fun. We didn't think it was that big of a deal. We recant because we're not going to die for a lie. But every single one of them did. They went to the grave believing because they knew what was real, what was true. That's the message we preach, that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, he is God. That's why he was resurrected. And so if, if he's God, then what's my state with him? What's my position with God? And the reality is in mankind, there is darkness. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is that, is that like a normal lie or a little lie? Right? We've all, we all sin a little bit or a lot. Like, what is it? Well, yes, all of us have. And if you don't believe me, look at the world. In our country, one of the most uh, affluent countries, not just in the world, but in all of history, you and I together, even the average person in the middle class is richer than King Louis XIV was. He was so rich, he had options of up to 400 meals a day. You have more. We are so wealthy. And yet we are a society 
that is arguing over killing people through suicide or arguing over allowing homelessness and, and allowing um, drug abuse. We're actually advocating for the mutilation of little children because they're confused over their gender and their sex. This is not something that's happening in the, in the dark corners of the, of the internet and the world. No, this is, this is what is being advocated in our world as normal. That's how dark we are as a world. That's why we need Jesus. So what does he want from me then? What's, what's to be my response to all this? Well, in 1 John 1, verses 8 to 10, and I'm just going to read it because we don't have time. John writes, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If you think you don't need Jesus, you're deceiving yourself, you're making him a liar, and you're still lost and you're still broken. But if you see it and you see how broken you are and how desperate you are and how much you need Jesus, all you need to do is confess, I agree, Lord, that I need you to forgive me, to wash me clean, and he'll do it. That verse, that passage, please understand, is not aimed at the church. That passage, 1 John 1, 8 to 10, is a salvation passage aimed at unbelievers. And all he's saying, all you need to do is agree to receive it, to trust. 1 John 3, 23, this is the one commandment. He says, believe in my name and love others as you've loved yourself or as I've loved you. That's it. And so that's to be our response. And, and this is the gospel that you and I get to bring to our neighbors, to our friends, to a hurting world. Again, if you discovered something so magical and so special, something that would bring healing, would you hide it from them? The, the famous magician Penn of Penn and Teller, he's the tall guy, the one that speaks. There's a video, you can find it on YouTube, and he, he says, you know, I would believe in Christians if they actually shared the gospel. But the fact they don't share the gospel tells me they don't actually believe it themselves. Because if you actually believe the gospel, if you actually believe that hell was waiting for people who don't know, and you don't tell them, so they must not believe it. Please understand, I'm not trying to beat us up. I'm not trying to condemn any of us. But he makes a good point that we've allowed those obstacles to prevent us from sharing our faith when in reality, those obstacles are real, but the result is so much more greater. It's worth it. If we will take a risk and trust Jesus as he's leading you to be a part of his work as he builds the church. So here's what we want to do in closing. Uh, a number of years ago, I was, I was ordained with, a, with an organization that, that gave me credentials to share the gospel. And um, it was done for different reasons and so forth. But I remember, I remember getting the, going there for the ceremony and getting the certificate. And it says that I am now commissioned to, to share the gospel. And I remember reading that thinking, whew, good thing. 
I've been doing it for 10 years under the radar. I'm glad no one caught me. No one found that out. I'm not in trouble with anyone. Now I'm doing it legally. I've got permission. And I kind of laughed and it was silly. And, and you know, the certificate means so much to me. It's sitting on the floor somewhere in my office. So you don't need permission. But maybe, maybe you're waiting for it. So here's what we're going to do. I want everyone to stand up right now. Because I'm going to commission you, each and every one of you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this incredible gift of salvation. That you've rescued and redeemed us from a broken world so that we could be united in you again. We can be joined to you in your life and we can eat and live and breathe in you. So thank you, Jesus. But now I commission each and every one of us that we would go to the ends of the earth. That we would go to our family and our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, maybe the person behind the checkout counter. And we would go and that we would share your life. We would share your gospel. That we'd have the courage to trust you as you lead us. So thank you, Lord Jesus, that we get to be a part of what you're doing and building your church and throwing great parties. And may those parties just take off as your kingdom grows. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.